Welcome to show number one of Where Are We Going, the podcast where we examine the future and the direction of Christianity and faith in our world. Today we look at peace and nonviolence. It seems that for the past 40 or 50 years, American Christians have been behind the idea of war. Actually, many American Christians for much longer than that. But many Christians are also asking the question, what did Jesus mean when he said, love your enemy? What did Jesus mean when he said, turn the other cheek? Does it really apply not just to the personal interactions that I have with people that I don't really like? Does, can it also apply to nations and to people groups and to people all over the world? Can peace really be possible, or does the church have to embrace war and conflict? Benjamin L. Corey is a blogger and writer, and he identifies as an Anabaptist. Anabaptism emerged centuries ago, one of the primary tenets being an embrace of peace and rejection of all forms of violence, seeing Jesus truly as the Prince of Peace and seeing the Christian's responsibility as bringing peace and rejecting violence. I'm Benjamin O'Corey and uh, I blog at formerlyfundy.com and have a book, Undiluted, Rediscovering the Radical Message of Jesus. And uh, I'm just a, a military guy turned Anabaptist and now a nonviolence uh, evangelist trying to get more and more people crossed over to the, the position of Christian nonviolence and uh, enemy love. So um, it seems to me that the nonviolent perspective is just something that is is growing in Christian circles. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, you know, it used to be such a minority, and I mean, still, you know, relatively speaking, it would be the minority view, but it's growing, and instead of just being an Anabaptist position, it's now really branching out, and you're even seeing a lot of evangelicals kind of crossing over to say, yeah, it does look like that's what Jesus taught. So, uh, uh, it's really kind of exciting to see that. I sure. think you're going to, I think five years from now, you'll see the position of nonviolence be far more mainstream. Uh, I think, I mean, we'll always, we'll always be, um, you know, people who are quite radical, but I think you'll see a lot more people in regular churches that start to adopt this position. So when you talk about nonviolence, what, are the, what, is, what does that mean for you? What does that include? Well, it just means that, you know, as people of Jesus in, the, you know, Matthew 5, Jesus said that, uh, that the children of God um, love their enemies and uh, do not respond to their enemies with violence. Um, and that instead of that, that we love them. And he describes it as, you know, as the, as the rain falls, almost like, you know, he says, and this is because, you know, this is how God loves people. This is how you're too. God loves indiscriminately. He loves the just and the unjust. Uh, and you are to love like the rain falls. Everyone, you're not to discriminate. So everybody gets loved. How do you see? How does that extend for you to, to legal issues? To weigh yeah. the way the United States behaves toward other countries? Sure. Well, we're definitely pacifists, so we don't believe in war. Sure. Um, so you know, we're always uh, anti-war. We always, you know, we think that violence only begets more violence. Yeah. And so, I mean, a really good example is, so you, right now you have ISIS, and ISIS puts out these gruesome videos of killing people, and it's horrific. 
But then one of the, you know, uh, something horrible I saw the other day was I think it was the Syrian army put out a video of them with a bunch of ISIS hostages who they executed on video. And so, you know, do they think that this is going to dissuade ISIS? Like this is only going to inflame them. And so ISIS is going to put out a video killing people. So then their enemy is going to put out a video of them killing them. And so like when Jesus told Peter, you know, to put away your sword for um, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword, we would say is, Jesus was teaching that violence only encourages more violence. It only escalates things. And so maybe it's an eye for an eye now, but or it starts out as tooth for a tooth, becomes an eye for an eye, and before you know it, it's life for life, nation for nation. Um, like, where does it end? Brian Zahn. Thank you, Brian, for being here, being on Where Are We Going? Well, thank you for inviting me, Jason. Absolutely. Could you just introduce who you are and what you do and tell us just briefly a little about about Yeah, I'm Brian Zahn. I am the lead pastor at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, and I've been doing that for 34 years. I'm 56 years old, so if you do the math, I started quite young. Uh, Grew up in the Jesus movement, that's really where I encountered Christ as a teenager and really was pastoring uh, really even before the church began. So I tell people I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult, and that really is the truth. And so I'm a pastor and have pastored one local congregation for 34 years. I also write books, and uh, that that about sums it up right there. Excellent. Well, um, we're, we're talking about peacemaking and about what it means to be a peacemaker and to be a nonviolent follower of Jesus. And your book, A Farewell to Mars, really, uh, really nails this topic and really addresses in some pretty, I think, profound and amazing ways and really challenges Christians to be people, to be followers of Jesus in a peaceful way. And uh, could you just say a little bit about the book, and then we'll we'll tackle a little bit of what you've written. Yeah, that well, the the way you uh, describe it, whether it lives up to that or not, it certainly was my intent. I had known for some time that eventually I would write my peace book, and I kept telling my wife, I said, I'll wait till I'm older and have less to lose. Uh, but then then my grandchildren came along, and I just thought, you know. Uh, I'm going to really put it out there, what I what I feel that the Lord has shown me concerning the peaceable nature of the kingdom of Christ, knowing that the moment you do that, if you pastor within an empire, and America is an empire, by the way, I define empires as rich and powerful nations who think they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history. This claim of empire or this description of empire is by no means unique to the United States. Uh, throughout the history of Christendom, you've had these attempts of um, Christ- at Christian empire, you know, Rome, sure. France, Britain, Germany, Italy, Russia, etc. Um, the problem God has with empire is that what empires claim for themselves is what God claims for his son, Jesus Christ. And so I knew that when I presented the kingdom of Christ as peaceable and that the waging of war is incompatible with following Christ, that that would probably 
generate controversy. Now, to be honest, Jason, I have actually been surprised that it hasn't generated more controversy. Yeah. Uh, the people that tend to react very vehemently against A Farewell to Mars tend to be those who haven't read it. <laughs> they, they assume something and they then attack it. But those who have read it, even if I don't fully persuade them, they tend to have a very respectful tone and demeanor when we uh, discuss the book. Sure. Well, I... I myself in reading the book, I was actually surprised in how far the book went. And, um, you know, I was really from the top kind of expecting a uh, just sort of an explanation of the, the nonviolent ethic of Jesus. But I think what you've really done is challenged us in the entirety of our theology and not just to rethink what Jesus is all about or what our response maybe to war or to conflict should be, but what our response to so many issues in the Christian life should be. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, I would say my attempt was to write a, a theological book that doesn't feel like a theological book. Sure. I mean, I think it is undergirded with a lot of substantive theology, but it doesn't read like an academic theological work. I'm certainly influenced by people like Stanley Hirewas and Rene Girard, and if people are familiar with those theologians, um, then they will recognize their presence in what I'm doing. But I'm writing it for, you know, the truck driver yeah. that... Uh, is willing to rethink some things in the light of Christ. And so, yeah, I, I would say it is a uh, it is a theological book, no doubt about that. So what are some of those things that, that you would say we need to, to rethink in light of being people of peace rather than maybe what the traditional evangelical church has been for the last 50 years or maybe for the last 2,000 years? Yeah, well, maybe the last 1,700 years would be a nice number to use. And by that, I mean, uh, for the first 300 years, the church really did operate as a radical alternative society. And then after the conversion of Constantine, and the uh, Edict of Milan, etc., and the church ends up, perhaps it, perhaps unwittingly, it's 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 a complex story. But the church ends up as chaplain to empire. That kind of changed everything. Mm -hmm. I think what we have to hold before us is how intensely political the message of Jesus is, and yet it's political in a way that no one else imagines, or the way in a way that no one has imagined apart from Christ. Uh, Jesus' entire ministry was an announcement and an enactment of the kingdom of God. The problem with that term kingdom of God is that kingdom is now an archaic term. We don't really use that term anymore. So let's think in terms of the kingdom of God, meaning the government of God, the politics of God, sure. the reign and rule of God. And everything Jesus did was toward the end of either announcing or enacting and, and eventually establishing an alternative politics, that is, an alternative society uh, built around him and expressed through love and forgiveness. Jesus had every opportunity to be what people wanted him to be and expected him to be, and that was a violent, revolutionary Messiah after the model of David 
and Judah Maccabeus, who who was a seminal figure in Jewish history about a century and a half before Jesus, who led the revolt against uh, the Syrian occupation, the Greek-Syrian occupation at that time. And that sort of gave them a, a prototype for what Messiah would be. And I would say Jesus not only had every opportunity to be a violent Messiah, he faced every temptation to be a violent Messiah. I think, I think it's clear in Scripture that Jesus was tempted toward that. I think that's the essence of the third temptation, uh, yeah. where, where, where we're told in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 that Satan comes to Jesus and offers him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory if he will but bow down and worship him. And I think we need to maybe take a little more sophisticated approach to that and not think that, you know, I mean, how, how did Satan come to Jesus? Well, I think Satan came to Jesus the same way Satan comes to us. Uh, disguised as our own thoughts. And as Jesus is contemplating how he's going to establish the kingdom of God, there is this temptation to do it through violent revolution. But Jesus recognizes that for what it is, that that is a capitulation to the power of the Satan that he rejects, and he remains faithful to the way of the Father, all the way to the cross, so that the cross, in fact, is the coronation of Christ. The cross is his throne. His crown is made of thorns. His scepter is a reed. The acclaim is done in the, in the form of mockery. And yet, ironically, it is a true coronation of the world's true king. The principalities and powers conspired against Christ. They condemned him in their so-called wisdom and justice. They sentenced him to death, and he was crucified, was buried. But on the third day, the father overthrew the verdicts of these lower courts, vindicated his son in resurrection, and now has exalted him or promoted him to his right hand, where he now reigns and rules as Lord over his peaceable kingdom. And the call of the church is to embody that reality here and now. But since Constantine, we've gotten an awful long way from that. And what we end up doing is supposing that mostly this is a very private and post-mortem matter, that really what Jesus was doing was just handing out tickets to heaven so that we could go to heaven when we die. In the meantime, we'll run the world as we please. And what, in, what ends up happening is Jesus is thus essentially demoted from being actually Lord, which is another political term, uh, from being actually Lord to being the Secretary of Afterlife Affairs. Yeah. And so what I'm calling people to do is to recognize the reality of the kingdom of God and that the church is called to embody that reality here and now and that one of the primary aspects of that kingdom is its radical commitment to peace. As we talk about peace, and as I've spent time talking with some of these folks who promote peace and teach peace, I start to ask the question, what do we do? What do I do in order to be a person who is a peacemaker? Just as Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Because I can be a person who tries to live peacefully. I can be a person who gets along with my neighbors and uh, doesn't get angry at bad drivers and is generally nice. 
But often I think the problem that people have with the idea of being peaceful is that it seems very passive. It seems like it's not really about doing anything, but more about doing nothing. I had the pleasure of chatting with John Deere, who is a Catholic priest who has spent most of his life attempting to be a peacemaker. Many of Father John's actions have been very controversial. He has been arrested over 75 times and spent a good amount of time in jail because of the acts of civil disobedience that he's taken. But yet his life has been exciting and he continues to work for change, for peace, for nonviolence in the world. Yeah, so I'm a priest and an activist and a writer. I've written almost 35 books on peace and nonviolence that people don't read. But anyway, and uh, organize against uh, war and nuclear weapons and poverty. And uh, I spent a lot of time in prison for demonstrations against war and traveled the war zones of the world. Been at this for 35 years and working for the abolition of war and poverty and nuclear weapons and environmental destruction and, and for a vision of a new nonviolent world, the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, over those 35 years, do you feel like you're seeing changes? Do you feel like we're headed in the right direction or do you have hope? Well, those are all big questions. <laughs> and I, uh, You know, the night before the government killed him, Martin Luther King, in that famous last speech in Memphis where he said, I've been to the mountaintop. Just before that, he said, the choice is no longer violence or nonviolence. It's nonviolence or non-existence. Those are the last words of Martin Luther King, and nobody talks about it. Nonviolence or non-existence. And I think that's our situation up to today. You can see it playing out. In their 35 wars, a billion people are starving, 3.5 billion people in subhuman poverty, at least 16,000 nuclear weapons good to go. Corporate greed, the likes of which we've never seen before, so a catastrophic climate change. On the other hand, I mean, and then all the other violence, we could be here talking all day long about all kinds. But on the other hand, there have been um, 85 nonviolent revolutions in the last 30 years. You know, think about it. The fall of the Berlin Wall happened nonviolently, and Mandela and ending apartheid in South Africa. To the Arab Spring, Lima Gaboi in Liberia, women's-led nonviolent revolution. We now know two-thirds of the human race are personally involved in nonviolent grassroots movement for justice and peace. This has never happened before. That's fact. So there's a lot of great happening, and we're on the brink of total non-existence. We could destroy ourselves if we don't get involved in ending climate change. But King said that night... We all have to become nonviolent or we're doomed. And we all have to lead humanity back from the brink of, non, uh, of violence and non-existence. So on the one hand, you know, I think things are worse than ever. If you work for peace, you really enter into the reality of, of evil that we're up against, the forces of killing. Uh, and the only way to sustain it is to go deep, 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 like the mystics, like Thomas Merton, into the roots of peacemaking, to have a long-haul view. Then you get beyond pessimism. 
into hope, which is a real biblical world that takes in salvation history, that nonviolence is the way of God. And, uh, you know, I, Merton said that the only way to be hopeful these days <clears throat> is to go deep into despair. That hope, if it's not to be the cheap hope of bourgeois America, bourgeois Christianity, has to be the hope of Jesus on the cross where there is no hope. And these are the things I've learned in prison, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in war zones, having friends killed, and just working tirelessly and feel like you make no difference. But, uh, you know, I thought that was the job description of the Christian, you know. (laughs) So uh, these are big questions you're asking me, questions I lecture about a a lot around the world. And, uh, you know, the hope of Dr. King, there isn't any hope for him. The hope of Jesus and the hope, you know, of Gandhi. These were pretty people very familiar with despair. So is it the job of the Christian, um, even if we don't see societal change? The job of the Christian is to follow Christ. That means, well, what does that mean? When I, Gandhi said Jesus was the most active person of nonviolence in history. And that is the greatest statement about Christ ever, according to even to Martin Luther King. And then poor Gandhi went on to say the only people who don't know that Jesus is nonviolent are Christians. I think Christians are doing everything but following Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. Love your enemies. If you're going to follow this guy, and he marches to Jerusalem, and they, he confronts systemic injustice in the temple, and they kill him for that. That's normal. You're going to get killed if you're doing that. He's like Gandhi and Dr. King. They kill, you kill people like yeah. that. This is the guy we follow? So if you're not working for justice and peace, I don't know how you can claim to be a Christian, because I see that as what Jesus is doing. So, no, you know, like your blog is, or, or your podcast, Where Are We Going?, the Christian answer is, we're going wherever Jesus is going. And Jesus is going to head to Jerusalem. We should be. No, no, we have to. We're, you know, there's, we, have to be. we have to, we have to. And we don't want to. They didn't want to. They tried to stop him. You know you're going to get killed. And he's still going to Jerusalem. We have to go to our own Washington, D.C.s, our own Jerusalem, and work to end war and poverty and nuclear weapons and executions and racism and environmental destruction. If you're going to follow this guy, what that's going to look like, how that's going to feel, it's not going to look good, it's not going to feel good, but we might begin to become faithful. You might know Rayburn Johnson as one of the hosts of the Beyond the Box podcast. He has recently spent a huge amount of time researching and looking into the issue of capital punishment. What does our faith say about our society taking the lives of people who have committed crimes? I got the opportunity to chat with Rayburn Johnson about capital punishment and how this issue relates to the issue of nonviolence and peacemaking in our society. Several months back, I started working on an episode Um, talking about the death penalty, and it's kind of been the biggest project probably of my life to date. Um, Just in researching it and talking to numerous people from all over the spectrum, from people that have been on death row and have later been exonerated to former uh, superintendents that have actually oversaw executions to uh, media witnesses to 
people all over the spectrum that have had firsthand experience with the death penalty, and it's really been a life-changing experience for me. Wow. So as we look at the death penalty, I grew up in a, in a conservative Christian home, and the death penalty was the right way to do things. And I, I, and I think in that Christian world, for so many Americans, the death penalty and capital punishment has been the Christian way. We hear that there are more Christians who support the death penalty than there are any other groups in the United States. And so what do you see? What's what's the problem? Well, I think a huge part of uh, this kind of shift in understanding for so many of us is that we're realizing that the the God that we associated capital punishment with looks more like the God of Joshua than the God of Jesus. Hmm. And, um, you know, in the Old Testament, it's very clear that that people are to, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And, you know, that there are certain things that are capital offenses. And the funny thing is we're pretty selective in our society about those. Um, we've narrowed those things down to just a handful of things that we consider uh, you know, grotesquely brutal, but in the Old Testament times, you know, you could be you, you, a capital offense would have just simply been, you know, picking up sticks on the Sabbath or, mm. you know, um, a woman not minding herself during her monthly visitor, you know, so there's all of these different things that we've now narrowed it down. But I know for myself, Jason, and I can really only speak for myself, the shift for me has come as, as the topic of your podcast is alluding to, as I've embraced nonviolence, I've started really realizing that this thing is kind of all or nothing. And, um, so I started down on, you know, down that path as far as just the death penalty and my response to it being an outflow of my embrace of nonviolence. But since then, I've come across a plethora of reasons that that the death penalty is problematic and some of those have very little to do with anyone believing in nonviolence sure you know as as i've been talking with different folks about just the broad issue of nonviolence and peacemaking it seems like um we might at at first think that the idea of peace is just a piece of the Christian life. It's just, you know, maybe a part of it. But I think it seems like as we examine it, it begins to just consume every area of our understanding of God and our theology and overlaps into everything that we thought we knew about living the Christian life. Yeah, um, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, can you Can you say a little bit about as we look at Jesus and as we look at the things Jesus taught or the way Jesus lived or maybe ways that you have come to understand Jesus more, how do you how do you see the teaching of Jesus or the life of Jesus or the example or the death and resurrection of Jesus? How do you see that um, bringing us to the idea that capital punishment is something that is not aligned with who Jesus is? Well, you know, I think as myself growing up as a conservative evangelical, the the predominant lens through which we viewed God would have been the Pauline epistles. And so what it ended up doing was minimizing really the life of Jesus to only be this one weekend in one instance of his life, speaking of the death, burial and resurrection. Um, 
since kind of coming into a new view over the last decade and, and, and re-examining Jesus, I've started realizing that we've largely erased this the rest of his life. It's almost as if the only purpose he came to earth was for this one weekend in his entire yeah. life. Yeah. And so what it causes us to do is it causes us to minimize both the example and the teachings of Jesus. And so when I look at the example of Jesus, you know, there are just numerous situations where under the Jewish law, uh, people had committed capital offenses. And yet Jesus not only did not call for their demise, but he actually called us to forgive them, to embrace them and to fellowship with them. And kind of the, the interesting caveat there, too, is that it's not just fellowship with them once they get clean and straight but fellowship with them in the midst of that sin, that capital offense. Hmm. So I think that, you know, we have the example of Jesus in, in that way. Then we also have the teaching of Jesus, you know, where we're to forgive our brother 70 times seven, you know, with this unlimited, unmerited forgiveness, where Jesus tells us that the way that we'll become sons of our father is by our, our enemy love and by our forgiveness of those who have wronged us, that the thing that actually designates us as his children is that enemy love for he says, you know, the father causes his son to shine on the just and the unjust and he causes his rain to fall on the, on the good and the bad. And he says, you know, in this same way, we're to indiscriminately love. And that's how we prove that we're children of God. Yeah. So I think the example and teachings of Jesus are huge. If we're going to call ourselves Christians or Christians or followers of Jesus or however you want to say it, um, then I think Jesus should play the central role in our lives. I think it's it's really easy for us to, especially if we've grown up in the church, we're so familiar with uh, the stories in the New Testament, so familiar with the Gospels and the story where Jesus uh, forgives the woman caught in adultery and, and basically tells her accusers to drop their stones. Mm. Um, we're so familiar with 70 times 7 and love your enemy, but we don't always apply it to maybe the stories we hear today or we 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 divorce it from the the stories we hear on the news of the kid who shoots his neighbor or mm. or the the man who kidnaps and rapes a child and um how how do you kind of make that connection yeah, I th you know, that that's actually a great question, and probably that is the number one argument for the death penalty, is when we begin to look at these horrendous crimes that certain people have committed and think, you know, they're unfit to live, they're unfit for society. And, you know, I, I would have a hard time making an argument that they're fit for society in the sense that they should be integrated with the rest of us. I mean, I do think that there is a place for separation, um, you know, where some people have committed things that are so horrible that they need rehabilitation. They don't need to be in society for a time. Um, but, you know, as a follower of Jesus, more and more I'm realizing that, you know, my view of God for so many years was that I was a child of God and other Christians were ch were children of God, but that that's where it stopped. 
But, you know, you have Paul on, the, on yeah. you know, Mars Hill in Athens saying that we're all the children of God, quoting one of the uh, heathen poets and actually affirming what he said by saying we're all children of God. So if we really take that and we really believe that the image of God is in everyone and we believe that, you know, Jesus, what Jesus did for us is powerful enough to save to the uttermost, then it really becomes a question of is anyone irredeemable? And I think that the minute we answer that as a yes in the affirmative, um, then we've really limited the power of God. We've limited God's unconditional love. We've limited God's forgiveness. And we've said that we've found something that's greater than the work of Christ. Yeah. And for me, that's a problematic position to hold while simultaneously saying I'm following Jesus. Do you think there is something there, too, where we – um, assign someone as as the other and as the person who um, is our enemy and basically as the scapegoat for the problem in society. Um, do you think there's some of that in in the way that we want to look at criminals and? Absolutely. If you yeah. if you simply open up a newspaper article or watch a television special that talks about um, a particular murder case and they're talking about the person that they've found guilty and they've been sentenced to die, if you'll just simply look at the pronouns that are assigned to that person or the or the descriptive terms, the adjectives that are used to describe that person, it's things like monster. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's it's th- you know the, these horrible people. It's always you can never affirm someone's life when you when you refuse to acknowledge their humanity yeah. and i believe it takes us actually dehumanizing them with labels like monster before we can kill them because it, it it's very difficult for anyone um to kill another human being you know one of the people that i talked to in, in this series um, Frank Thompson, who was the superintendent for the Oregon State Penitentiary, he actually was responsible for the only two executions in the state of Oregon for the last 50 years. And so he, he did everything from writing the protocol for the death penalty in Oregon because it had not been uh, carried out in decades to actually staying in the room and giving the nod for the poisonous chemicals to start flowing. Wow. Um, so he, you know, he's seen it all. And one of the things that we often overlook in discussions of the death penalty is the trauma that those who carry it out experience mm. because not only does it dehumanize that that inmate that death row prisoner but it dehumanizes these people who in the name of the state are having to carry out the most heinous premeditated killing that's possible it, it doesn't get more premeditated than saying you're going to kill someone and and setting a date and you know, years, months, decades later, carrying it out. Yeah. Doesn't get more premeditated than that. And as I've spoke, as I've spoken to these people, they've just told me these horrible stories of the trauma that they've had to go through, the post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, Frank mentioned how several of the people that, that he had on staff have really experienced hard times. I, I know one gentleman, Ron McAndrews in Florida, who was, um, responsible for several of the executions in the state of Florida. He talks about death row prisoners coming to his bed at night 
and sitting on the foot of his bed. I mean, just horrible, horrible things. You can't kill another human being, no, hmm. no matter how grisly you deem their actions to be, and it and it leave you unaffected. That that is amazing because I think in just a broad sense, when we talk about nonviolence, whether we're talking about war or whether we're talking about the violence in our own neighborhoods or talking about the death penalty in in every occasion that we want to resort to violence, it seems that we're required to dehumanize in mm-hmm. some way. And, yeah, yeah. And it's impossible not to. I mean, perfect example, and this is totally off, off of the death penalty, but, you know, there was a battle during World War One that happened uh, over Christmas Eve, and the German forces and the Allied forces were in separate separate sections of the battlefield with a trench in between them. And on Christmas Eve, the fighting stopped temporarily, and they began to sing Silent Night in German. And all of a sudden, the Allied forces began to sing Silent Night. And then they all came out of their trenches and had a Christmas Day truce and began to exchange gifts and talk to each other. Well, the next day, they found that when they had to resume the battle, the commanders and generals, the people in charge of the battle, were having a hard time getting anyone to fire at anyone else because they had met the other and they had realized the other is just like me. In Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet has a vision of the world that God wants to set up and create. Verse 3 says, Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This passage has been cited over and over again by those who advocate for peace, especially An individual who I'm talking with next, Mike Martin. Mike Martin founded a group called Raw Tools, and they literally turn weapons into tools. Um, This is a very interesting and unusual group, but Mike's vision was to say, we practically in our world want to take the tools of war that we see around us, the tools of violence, and turn them into tools of life. Perhaps uh, all of us are not in the position to be turning guns into gardening tools, but we can certainly be people who are thinking, how do we turn the tools of death, the tools of violence around us, into life? Mike Martin with Raw Tools, we take uh, guns and turn them into garden tools. Uh, that's kind of the focus of our work, but we use that to to focus and change our narratives from narratives of violence to narratives of peace. 
and to use the metaphor of swords to plows to push people to learn nonviolent confrontation skills and and even just to push them to explore those opportunities. Yeah. So where did this the kind of raw tools come from? Where, where, how to develop? Uh, well, I grew up in a in a Baptist faith background, and I also most of my my working life has been in some form of landscaping. So. Um, kind of mixing my, my work career around working in, in somewhere around uh, things that grow and, and my faith background and a nonviolent uh, emphasis. They kind of meshed over the, the, Isaiah and script, the scriptures of Isaiah and Micah, beating your swords to plows and, and what that means and, and how that can change our world now too. And um, just the process of it kind of eliminates an option for confrontation. By doing it, we, we choose not to use violence or guns or weapons in confrontation. And so then it opens our minds to explore other options. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really interesting. And I think there's a lot of folks who can understand and relate to that. Can you, can you say a little bit more about just kind of the philosophy of why are we why are we turning weapons into tools and why is that important in our world today? Well, I think especially in, in the American context, there's such a proliferation of, of weapons and guns, especially almost one per person. And uh, compared to other countries, that's so high in that... And that why why are we why are we so addicted to that kind of a culture and what does that mean toward our own identity and and I think it's come to light that it just means that we want to we we like to depend on ourselves and not on others and and we just want to help with that shift and moving our our country away from that. What kind of what kind of response do you get when you talk about it or? display the things that you do? Um, most of the people who come to our event know what they're getting into. They yeah. kind of have an idea of what we're about. But there are certain certainly people even inside of my own faith tradition that, uh, that disagree. Um, but most of the flack goes to the people who donate the guns to us, not necessarily our organization itself. Yeah. Uh, they, they kind of become targets for that, and the ones that they're the butts of the jokes, not us. Mm. So it's been an interesting twist that we weren't really expecting and, and kind of makes us focus more on uh, the people who choose to engage in what we do are really sacrificing a lot and kind of opening themselves up to be... To be uh, target for people to make fun of or to to drag through different kind of meaningless debates when it you know um, if we're about freedom then we have the freedom to do with our possessions what we want except for guns so hmm. so what are some what are some of the things that you are making out of the out of the weapons uh, most of what we're making is a, a two-sided garden mattock so there's a hoe on one side and a fork on the other uh, sometimes it's just the fork, sometimes it's just the hoe. We also do a lot of different custom uh, work or jewelry, um, uh, different special tools that maybe someone wants, uh, different specialized gardening tools, things like that. It's really open to whatever whatever people want to make, especially if they're donating their own gun. Sometimes they ask for a certain type of tool to trade for it. So you talk about the folks donating donating the guns. Are these coming? Uh, who, what kind of folks are they coming from? And are they folks who want something, want their their own gun turned into something they're going to use? 
Yeah, sometimes it's just uh, we, we get people who just want to be rid of the gun, uh, whether it was their own purchase and now they don't want it, be it an assault weapon, a, a handgun, or just any any kind of ordinary uh, long rifle. Um, sometimes they would like a tool in return. Uh, maybe they're not a gardener, but they could use a hammer or um, other different variety of things. So uh, one of the things we do is if someone donates a gun to us, we'll, in exchange for that donation, we'll give them a tool, and then uh, whatever's left of the gun after that tool we use to help support what we're doing. Sure. Yeah. So what, what would you say to the person who doesn't really understand this and, uh, you know, says we need to have guns for self-defense and more guns makes more safety? Well, I usually point people to the, the person who donated. The first gun that we ever had donated was an AK-47, and this person has uh, other handguns and hunting rifles. But after Sandy Hook, there was kind of a, uh, a moment where he realized maybe that one wasn't as necessary. And so he got rid of his assault rifle, and that, that was his line. And then recently he called me back again and says, well, I think I want to give you my pistols now. And so there's just kind of this progression of thought uh, that people kind of go towards. Um, to not understand it, we'll open up the conversation and kind of talk about um, why why it is they feel they, they need to have that gun, um, whether it's self-protection or sometimes it's just hunting. But for in self-protection, we uh, I really challenge, especially those who hold to a Christian faith, um, how does a gun help you love your enemy? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and that, that's something that Jesus flipped the switch on. You know, it was something that before you could you could answer that question on how do you love your neighbor with a gun? Will you protect them? But when you ask how do you love your enemy, there's really no answer. There's no use for a gun in that scenario. Yeah, I think probably most of us don't realize how radical loving your enemy really is. The issue of peace and nonviolence is a difficult one. We've heard from so many people who are advocating for peace in both Christianity and in the wider secular world around us. We've heard from people who are working and taking practical steps to be peacemakers, yet it is still difficult for us personally to find how are the ways that we can bring peace? How are the ways that we can involve a theology of peace into our lives? How can we become people who love our enemies, who turn the other cheek, and who always forgive? These are difficult issues. I guess in finishing up, I just want to encourage you to look at the life and the ways of Jesus and to bring your life more in line with his example. I hope that the interviews, the conversations today have been enlightening and inspiring. If you'd like to know more about any of the guests today, the things that they have written, please take a look at the show notes. We have links to their work as well as their books and uh, ways that you can contact them. So please look there. My name is Jason Weedle. You can find information about me as well as the things that I've written at jasonweedle.com, J-A-S-O-N-W-I-E. 
D-E-L. Thanks for joining us. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Where Are We Going, where we're examining the future and the direction of Christianity in the world today.